Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16? And we're going to begin by looking at the first 16 verses. Uh, and if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read this together? It begins in verse 1. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sencria. And I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. And greet my dear friend Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Unius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, whom I loved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphema and Tryphosa, those women who worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. And greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been mother to me. Greet Ansyncritus and Phlegon and Hermes and Patrobas and Hermas and the brothers with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nereus, his sister, and Olympus and all the saints with them. And greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Hmm, let's pray. Father, we ask as we look to your word this morning that your Holy Spirit would help us to hear what we personally need to hear, both individually and as a community of believers. Lord, we recognize that for most of us, this is kind of flyover country. It's a list of names that we kind of don't follow. And, you know, yet you've said that every word of God is there to speak to us. And so we believe you for that today as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Many years ago, I, was, uh, I passed by a small neighborhood church in uh, Southern California with a sign in front of it really almost as big as the building itself. And as I remember its name as best I can, it was a little long, so I had a little trouble remembering it all, but it set, went something like this. It was the first church of God in Jesus only, holiness, Pentecostal, fire-baptized, Bible-believing fellowship. But what caught my eye most was a little byline underneath it that said, a true New Testament church. And I couldn't help but wondering, how do they know? And the reason I put it like that is because even though there's a lot of information about how the church is supposed to function, we're not given much information in format or form. It talks about the life of the church and the people together, but it doesn't talk about the other organizational dynamics to the degree that we might assume. 
In fact, would it surprise you to know the early church never gave itself a name? It wasn't that self-aware. In fact, in large part, they saw themselves, as the writer of Hebrews said, as aliens and strangers on the earth, longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Their concern wasn't to establish an organizational structure here on the planet. They just simply were following Jesus, and their concepts didn't go much further. Now, we live in a very different age. Church planners, one of the things they're very concerned with even today is, okay, let's come up with a name. It's a name either that will associate it with something else or a name that will set it out distinctly. It's interesting, when I was younger, it was fairly easy. They were Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, Congregationalists. I mean, there was some kind of name that gave you some sort of idea of what to expect when you went into the door. Today, the names are rather vague, maybe even innocuous. Elevation, Hillsong. The journey, anthem, cause. I mean, these are interesting names, but they don't really tell you what you're going to experience when you go through the door. But the early church didn't concern itself with that. They, they never called themselves anything, which may surprise most of you. In fact, it was Jesus who gave very pragmatic descriptions of those who were following him. He called them his disciples, a term that simply meant one who learns by following somebody else. That's what it means to be a disciple is you follow someone else and you learn by observation and by imitation so that Jesus could say to them, as you have seen me do, go and do the same. Or he referred to them, and not the most complimentary term, he called them his sheep. Now, if you've ever been around sheep, if you've ever raised sheep, you know this is no high compliment. It's no commentary on your intellectual capacities, but Jesus said in John 10, my sheep do what? They listen to my voice, and then he says, then they follow me. Again, when he gives its close to a title, he calls it his church. Today, that is somewhat of a, a technical term to us, but when Jesus used it, it was not technical. It was not even that specific. It simply meant the called out ones. In other words, basically, those who were following him, he called the church because the term that was used there, the ecclesia, was for a public assembly, basically people who would come together for a particular reason, but it didn't have anything that was quite distinct. And Jesus didn't envision in his mind a building with some kind of religious symbol in front of it. It literally meant in his time a group of people who were separated for a certain kind of conversation or experience. Ironically, it was actually the non-Christians who started giving Jesus' name, followers names. We might even more accurately say began calling them names because the names they gave them were hardly complimentary in the season that they were rendered. For example, they were referred to in Acts 9-2 as simply being the way. In fact, it's Paul the apostle, or Saul before he is saved, who is sent out to arrest and imprison and even execute those who were followers of, quote, it says, the way. It says, uh, if he found any there belong to the way he might take them as prisoners. They may have gotten the term from Jesus saying that he was the way, the truth, and the life, 
but we are not really told. It's the first time there's any identification given to this group of people other than the fact that previously they were Jews. But now they are called by some the way. In Acts 24, 5, speaking of Paul as, as the apostle, it says, we have found this man to be a troublemaker. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Jesus being from Nazareth, they called them, his followers, Nazarenes. In fact, even within Judaism and within Islam, Christians are still referred to as Nazarenes. It wasn't until much later that we read in Acts that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, and it was a word, Christianos in Greek means little followers of Christ. It, again, it, it was more of a mocking and pejorative term than it was complimentary. It wasn't something that was meant to say, yeah, that's what we'll call ourselves. So that it's kind of ironic in a way because the term has stuck over the centuries. That what was meant as an insult they wore as a badge of honor. Not unlike what I experienced when I first came to the Lord in the early, late 60s and the Jesus people revival and all that sort of stuff. We were often referred to as Jesus freaks. Now, you know, somebody calls you a freak, you don't usually come and say, well, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate you recognizing that. But we began to wear that as a badge of honor. Yes, I am a Jesus freak. In other words, I am obsessed with following Jesus. It works for me. So what was meant as an insult became really something that we were willing to identify because in a sense, it's not about us, it's about him. It's not about drawing attention to who we are. It's about really you're focusing on Jesus. Jesus is so significant, he's worth getting freaked out about, Amen. right? He's worthy to be followed. But in you, as you look at this, do you kind of see a common thread here? I mean, again, the names they were given was given to them by others. They were given to them by non-Christians who observed them, sometimes from a distance, sometimes closer. But they were identified by what they did. They were identified by the simple fact that they were followers of Jesus. They, were never, they never sought a name or identity for themselves, as I said before, because they were not that self-aware. They were not setting out to establish a movement or to build an organization. That's because the early church, again, was far more concerned with their function than they were with fame or with form. That's not to imply that they had no organization. I mean, the sudden and exponential growth of the church absolutely necessitated it. It's kind of funny to me because there's a, a, a view today that the church is, anytime a church becomes large, there's something unhealthy about that. The truth of the matter is the first church was a mega church. In fact, Acts 2.41 says, the same day there were added to them 3,000 souls. In one day, the church went from 120 to 3,000. In fact, further on in chapter 4, it says that many heard the word and believed, and the number of them was about 5,000. So almost within a few weeks, they have a congregational meeting of some 8,000 people. That may be why we're told that they met in Solomon's porch, which is the entire eastern portico of the temple. 
a very large, expansive area. They had to find big places to get together because the church had grown so exponentially fast. They may have only begun with 12 apostles, but soon we're told, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4, they were adding prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, all out of necessity to do what? To prepare God's people for works of service. But the church was still more of an organism than it was an organization. They organized around relationships and the meeting of, of very practical needs, operating under the governing principles laid by, down by Jesus in John 13, 35, when he said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, which is a concept that's so central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because if what I'm doing isn't expressing love towards the person I'm doing it to or for or with, then there's no way possible that people are going to identify my actions as being those of one of his disciples. You see, even the non-Christian in our day and age of increasing secularization recognizes when somebody is behaving in a way that speaks of a follower of Jesus and when they're just being religious. There's a big difference. We, we all understand this. We understand it about ourselves. I know when I'm behaving in a way that reflects I'm following Jesus, and I also know when I'm behaving in a way that just reflects the fact that I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to behave a certain way. That's why sometimes, just for integrity, I speed. Anyway, <laughs> but do you understand what I'm saying? I hope you understand because I better do something else if you don't. But essentially, Jesus knew in saying all of this that it was only a matter of time because he, he tells us in John 2, he knows every man. He knows what's in us. He knows the way we are. He knows our, our weakness and our predilection towards certain behaviors. Knowing all this stuff, he knew that his church would metastasize into an organization. See, what often becomes a spontaneous, inspirational, spirit-led movement of God out of necessity, as the early church has, has to form some kind of organizational structure. And those titles, those names, things like pastor and bishop and so forth that were really descriptions of a kind of labor or kind of effort in the same way you say he's a carpenter or he's an electrician, they began to take on kind of a sanctified spirituality or empowerment or entitlement and suddenly being a bishop which meant to be one who oversees the spiritual needs of people became something that took on its own uniform and its own accoutrements and its own empowerment and it became a title of officialdom rather than becoming expression of how you serve one another. And you know you, you know me, you know the way we are. We, we crave for those things that will enhance our image in the presence of other people. But I'm going to come back and tell you again that the early church didn't seem to be terribly mindful of that. Maybe that's because when the world is against you and opposition is everywhere, you, don't, you think more about survival than you think about getting you know, an upgrade promotion. 
But Jesus knew that there would come a point where it would move from being this movement of the Holy Spirit to becoming this ministry that would begin to uh, develop all sorts of policies and procedures and there would come politics in all of that and ministry like the great transformer would be transformed into a machine. A machine that becomes more concerned with its own existence than it is with following Jesus. The organization oftentimes becomes more concerned with how do we perpetuate what we have. We we can't allow the organization to fall or to suffer. We need to always be on the guard and protect and keep it moving forward and on and on we go. And somewhere in that, and it's it's kind of like the well-intentioned dragons of life, but somewhere in there we lose the sight of the fact that we are called to simply be followers to not be so self-aware that we lose sight of our awareness of Him. We become in danger of becoming, I mean, like the church in Sardis of whom the Lord said, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're not. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, you, you become whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Someone once observed, I think in fact it may have been Chuck Smith who said there's this fourfold process. He says you start as a movement, you become a ministry, then you become a machine, and in the end you end up a mausoleum. And, <laughs> and you know, I mean, the history of Christianity has proven that, that flow to be true. Uh, as a friend of mine put it so well one time when we were discussing these things, he says, we are the prisoners of history. As much as we may look back and say, well, we're not going to let that happen to us, it will happen to us unless God is allowed to shake us and rattle us and take us through those kind of experiences that we actually militate our efforts against going through. So you and I find we have this conflict going on inside of us. On one hand, I want to stabilize and secure my world and make sure that everything runs like clockwork. And At the same time, God knows unless there are regular disruptions in my life, I will never fall on my knees and cry out for his help. And I found myself, as my wife and I were praying yesterday, I found myself just saying this to the Lord and almost regretting it was coming out of my mouth. Jesus, thank you for the things that you do to shake our lives up and keep us living on the ragged edge. Thank you for that. Now you can stop. (laughs) I'm so schizo about this whole thing. I remember as a young believer, I I would get up early in the morning and go and and, and pray in the dark by myself because I was so intensely spiritual and holy. And I remember praying one morning and I saying, Lord, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would just humble me. And as soon as the words came out of my mouth, a shudder went through my body. And I literally am processing this in my brain saying, what in the world did you just say? And I actually literally tried to take my prayer back. <laughs> I mean, what I mean, Lord, is I mean, I, 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 I don't really want to be humbled in a painful and awkward and embarrassing way. If you could humble me silently, invisibly, and without me even being aware of it, that would be so... And at some point, I just got embarrassed being with myself. <laughs> like, you just, you just sitting there going, God, what an idiot I am. And I remember I got off in that prayer and said, I am in such deep weeds right now. Because I felt the spirit in the first part of that prayer. <laughs> 
Didn't feel it in the backup, but I felt it, and I knew what was coming. Well, I say all that as a way of introduction because this is one of the reasons why I think this passage that we just read through is so very, very important. Within this long list of foreign names and cryptic greetings, Paul reveals valuable insights into what the early church was really like. It's really unlike any other passage we have in the New Testament where he not only names so many people but says so many individual things about them that give us this little window into the world that was the early church. Here is a list of 26 names. He has 16 men, 10 women. Some of the names are Roman, some of them are Greek, most of them are Greek. A few are Jewish. Some of the people we can assume were wealthy. Some were freemen. Most were probably slaves, just by the way their names are presented. There's no mention of stuff. There's no assets. There's no churches, no basilicas, no cathedrals. Those things didn't show up for probably another 200 years at the very earliest. Out of necessity, therefore, they met where they could and they met in homes. It wasn't like they could go find an empty building someplace and rent it. It was basically finding what accommodations were available and often that would have been the house of a wealthy man or woman or couple who could afford to have a large enough uh, foyer or courtyard that they could invite the congregation in. There are, in fact, possibly five different house churches mentioned in this passage. One, clearly. The other four are, I think, implied. As it says of Priscilla and Aquila, it says the church that meets at their house. Each house church was likely small in size, maybe 50 or 60 members that would meet. But they represented, as we find from this reading, multiple congregations across the city so that we would call them house churches. And they indicate to us that the church in Rome, as with was true with the church in Jerusalem, as, as the church in Antioch and Ephesus and Corinth, were actually quite large. They didn't see themselves as separate congregants. They saw themselves as this community dispersed across the whole city interacting. And like Rome itself, it was a population of people that was quite diverse. Which is kind of, you know, I mean, interesting, I think, from our perspective. Because we live in a particular community that I would hardly describe as being seriously diverse. We, we live in a community that's pretty homogenous. And, and so that uh, it's really always kind of exciting to me to see any kind of diversity because that means I can stay. But what we see in this church is first and foremost that it was a multicultural church, as the names reveal. There were people who were coming into the church with Jewish backgrounds and Jewish traditions even Jewish preferences. There were people who were coming from the Greek world, which was the antithesis. In fact, most people don't realize that in the city of Rome, half the city were slaves, and the preferred slave in the Roman aristocracy and the wealthy were Greeks, because Greeks were actually well-educated and trained. The Greeks, many of them became the managers and the people who ran the businesses and who educated and tutored the children, so that you had this whole class of people who were slaves 
They were property of other people, but actually they were quite significant, important people. In fact, some of the men who actually ran the Roman Empire were slaves of the very emperors that they served. So you have this, this Greek culture of people who are highly sophisticated and educated, and yet they're not freemen. And then there were some Romans, which may be even kind of surprising because for a Roman to convert would have been considered a real step down culturally, particularly of the requirements that went into the church. That they were probably a multiracial church. As most historians have observed, one particular writes, he says, the Romans were equal opportunity enslavers. They did not limit their enslavement to one people or place or, in our terms, one race. In fact, they seem to have been really, in a very real sense, very colorblind, much more concerned about what a person could contribute than what they looked like or the language they spoke or so forth. In fact, one of the biggest classes of slaves were the celebrities of the culture. It was the gladiator. Gladiators were slaves. They were not freemen. They were property. And yet they were the celebrities. They were the rock stars of the Roman world. In fact, Roman women would pay large amounts of money just to have little vials with the sweat that was scraped off the, uh, off the, the gladiator's body put into little vials and they would wear those around their neck as emblems of their virility. So, it didn't start with Kanye. Anyway, <laughs> yet in the Roman church, what's most important is they were also an amazingly egalitarian church. So you have a culture that is very stratified and feels no discomfort over seeing some people more important than others. In fact, Livy wrote about the slave that he was a living tool and that you, as you can do with whatever you want with your tool because it's your possession, so you can do whatever you want with any slave that you possess. They have no rights, they have no privileges, they have no place. And yet, suddenly we begin to find that not only were there slaves in the church, but some of them were actually pastoring churches of free men, even though they themselves were enslaved. What happened essentially is there was a kind of egalitarianism coming into the church that was turning that world upside down, and that Paul and Peter and the rest of the apostles weren't going into Rome as some kind of social reformers attacking the issues of social injustice, as oftentimes liberation theologists try to suggest. They were doing something else. They were simply speaking to the common denominator of human need that we are all sinners and we desperately need the grace of God. And whatever kind of wrapper or package you come in is really insignificant because what really matters is you have a hole in your heart that only Jesus Christ can fill. And they preached that gospel. And once that hole was filled with the seed of God's truth, they just let that grow to see what it would become. And interestingly, some of the most unlikely and unqualified became pastors and prophets and evangelists and teachers and pastors because the Spirit of God was free to move in their midst. We're not given any kind of record in the Scriptures of a rite of passage or a curriculum that you had to pass other than the fact that Paul would simply say he must first be proven. That just has to be a track record. Because in reality, we're unlike God. We can only know men and women by their actions. 
And so the idea of coming from someplace afar and entering in, the idea that we often say, let's go out and hire spiritual leaders from this place or that school or that institution and make them the spiritual leaders of the church, well, there's something inherently wrong with that in a bigger sense because it denies the fact that that's supposed to be happening in, amongst ourselves. That's to be happening in our midst. There's not to be, that it, stopped, it starts becoming organizational and it stops being organic and something that just simply grows of itself. Yet I think what stands out most of all in this passage is that there are 10 women listed and they are listed in the most complimentary way. In fact, as one historian put it, he says, at no time in Roman history were women allowed to hold public office or work in the government. Women were not even allowed to make suggestions to their husbands. Hmm. <laughs> Yet when we look at the Roman church, women are not only present, they are prominent. So that in verse 1, he says, Phoebe, who is a, a servant, literally the word diakonos means a deacon. She's an office holder within the early church. We might want to call her a deaconess, but the whole point is that she is an office holder within the church, and he goes on to say of her, that she should be treated. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and that you give her any help she may need from you for she has been a great help to many people, including me. So that his consideration essentially is saying, I would, I would guess that she very likely was the courier of the letter because Sancria is really kind of a, a port city connected to Corinth. So she's from Corinth where, where Paul is busy collecting for the saints and she is sent on this errand to deliver this most important church to the church in Rome. He's not sending a man, he's sending a woman. He says, now treat her as is worthy a saint. This idea that a woman should be held in such regard by the church was really out of the box. And then there are those whom Paul refers to as his co-workers. He talks about Priscilla. He talks about Mary. He talks about Eunius, my relatives who have been in prison with me, Tryphema and Tryphosa, my dear friend Persis. So that we understand that in the church there wasn't this stratification that existed in the society as a whole, but there was, as Paul would tell the Galatians, neither slave nor free nor Jew nor Gentile nor rich nor poor. There was no, no breaking down that they looked at each other as being of equivalent value and importance and actually given important works to do. And that's why, that fourthly, I would say that they were a sacrificing church. You know, there's something about having skin in the game that makes us invest. And oftentimes we want to reap the benefits of something without having to have any kind of commitment to the whole. 
I mean, that's why when you go shopping, you used to be when I was a, when I was a, a hippie, that's a hippie and singular, when I was a hippie, I mean, we had a lot of what we call cooperative stores. The idea that a group would own this operation and we'd all contribute our labor and our time and our energy, and we'd, it was this community thing that we were doing together. And one of the things I found is that those kind of things are, are, are destined for failure. They always ended up failing for one reason, I find that with human beings, when there is total communal equality, over time, some people become more equal than the rest. It just, it just has a way of, of happening that way. But also, most of us want to be able to go to the store and get what we get and leave the store without any further commitment or obligation. We can be that about the church. It's nice, you walk in, you sit down, you, you get what you think you're going to get, and then you get up and you walk out, and you don't really feel any responsibility. Now, it's different for me. I mean, I understand that. But this morning when I was finding a table that was in the wrong place and a cart that was in the wrong place, I'm dragging furniture around the building and moving things around because nobody else is here. But to me, I've, it's like my house, my home, it's, it's something that I feel is, is connected to me and reflects me and reflects us. And you concern yourself about that because this is us. There's a level of ownership that you begin to have. And if there's anything that's lacking in the church today, it's this level of ownership. Whether it's our finances, whether it's our time, whether it's our energy, we like the idea that we can hire these professionals who carry out the work of ministry and then we can kind of both spectate and consume. And all I can say is that that's just not the way it was intended to be. And I've discovered over the years there's a cultural barrier that resists that. It's really interesting. And there's an emotional barrier that resists that. And we'll talk about that a little bit further on. But there is this thing, this resistance. I don't want to be drawn into that kind of obligation, into kind of that liability. I want to have that freedom that if things just aren't where I think they should be, that I can just pop and go someplace else. So that even the term exists in the church today, I'm shopping for a church. I'm shopping for a church. Which has to be a very frustrating experience. That's why I make it a point, because I realize there may be some here this morning who are shopping for a church. That's why I always make it a point never to do or say anything that might offend. <laughs> but when I talk about being a sacrificial church, I'm saying that these people had a major level of buy-in so that when he talks about Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila, he says, they risked their lives for me which is also a little side note, it's interesting, that of the seven times that Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned in the New Testament, five of the seven times Priscilla is listed first, which you have to understand in, in, in Greek languages, that's the position of prominence. Priscilla was more prominent than Aquila. That's why we're Jamie and Ken Ortiz. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting statement, but the whole point was, Paul said, these aren't people who are just kind of uh, doing this because 
they want to be part of an organization or things, they put their life on the line. They literally hazard their own lives. When he says in verse 7 of Adronicus and Eunius, my fellow countrymen, or, you know, it says his, his relatives, the, probably they are Jews, he says, who have been in prison with me. They had stood up for their faith and suffered the consequence of imprisonment because of it, as Paul had. When he talks about these women, Mary and Tryphema and Tryphosa and Persis, and he says of them, who worked very hard in the Lord. The, the phrase worked there leads literally very hard, implies they toiled to the point of exhaustion. You know, they, they, they literally were so dedicated to the work that they were doing that they literally went to the point of exhaustion. One of the questions that I, as I begin reading this passage, this is what I kind of do each week. I, I'll go home this evening and read the remainder of the book so we can finish it next week and I read it over and over again. I read it in every kind of translation I can possibly read it and then I start tearing it apart word by word. It's uh, you know, kind of an obsessive thing that OCD people like me do but as I'm going through this whole thing, this question hit me in the face. How did Paul know all these people never having been to Rome? Now I'm sure that was the first thing that came to your mind too, right? But he's talking about intimate details about a group of people <laughs> that are in a city that he says, I haven't been there yet. And we're left with a couple of conclusions that at one time or another, these must have been people whom Paul had at least worked with and worked with them long enough and knew well. They could have been people who started in Ephesus or started in Corinth and literally were dispatched or chose to move. There was a lot of movement in the Roman world because of business and so forth, and that itself could have carried people all over the place. But these are people who Paul had interaction with, connection with. And it appears that as he speaks of them, he has something complimentary to say about every single one. And you know why that is? Because these were people who were sinless and flawless. You buying that? <laughs> now Paul has some foes and he mentions them next week and, and they weren't his friends and he's very clear about that, but he rarely tells us who his foes were. On a couple of occasions, he'll tell us in the letters who a foe was and who was dangerous because he wanted to warn them against that person's activities, but rarely did he go there. He spent most of his time building up rather than tearing down. And it's interesting because if Paul knew these people, had spent time with them, working with them, which he had to to be able to say these things about them, we can be sure that he saw their flaws, he saw their failings, he saw their foibles. Because as Aesop said so fabulously, familiarity breeds contempt. Now contempt is a, is a powerful word because what contempt is is the major cause of divorce um, contempt is this diminishing view of another person that causes you to distance yourself and see them as a waste of your time and energy. If I hold somebody in contempt, I'm not going to be asking them to sit down and have coffee. And so one of the things you find is by, by the nature of man that when you begin to hang out together with somebody a lot, you begin to see things in them that you don't like. Now here's a little fact about marriage you may not know. Um, the earlier in life you marry, 
the more likely you will marry somebody who is extremely different from you. The younger you are when you marry, the more likely you'll marry somebody who's very, very different from you. Because when we're younger, we're enamored by the difference. And then we marry them, and we realize that their difference is driving us crazy because now it has invaded your personal world. I mean, I, I know in my own life, it was, it was, you know, incredible. I mean, when I, before I was married, I, I left things where I wanted to leave them. I ate when and what I wanted to eat. I wore clothes that really somebody needed to tell me not to wear. I mean, there were a lot, I had some plaid bell-bottom pants that were, I don't know what I was thinking or drinking when I bought those, but they, I thought all the attention I was getting was because they were so cool. No, they just thought the carnival was coming through town <laughs> and I needed a ride. I don't know. But there were a lot of things in my life that suddenly I found my precious bride was intruding into. And you see, it's easy at that point to begin to become contemptuous of what you see in other people. And at that point, you have to make a conscious effort to love that person I don't buy for a minute that Paul was so spiritual that he didn't have to learn how to love certain people. Many people have this idea that love is a response of attraction. I love you because I find you attractive. Your personality attracts me, your behavior, your appearance, whatever. I'm attracted to you and therefore I love you when the fact of the matter is that love only becomes love when it loves in spite of, not because of. The kind of love that God has for me is a love that looks at me and says, I'm going to love you anyway. I'm going to love you anyway. And this is where many of us struggle even in our Christian journey because we will do and say things and we couldn't imagine if it was us doing it to us, we would never forgive ourselves. We can't believe that anybody else would forgive us and in many times things happen in life where they won't forgive you. And yet God says, but that's not me. I will forgive you. I will always forgive you. And understandably, it doesn't justify bad decisions, bad behavior, but nonetheless, God says, this is who I am. In fact, the word that Paul uses to describe this is acceptance. In fact, in verse 7 of chapter 15, he had said to us, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. <laughs> How did Christ accept me? The word here that's used in the original literally means to uh, grant one access to your heart. So when somebody is not accepted, what we're saying is, I'm going to keep you at a safe distance where I can't be wounded or injured by your behavior, your choices, your attitudes. I'm going to keep a safety space there. And you know, you have that, you know that, right? You have this 24-inch circle around you that, you know, people, only the most uh, safe people in your life are able to come in closer than that. You tend to keep them away. But Paul said, you know, I accept you, or he's saying you need to accept one another the same way that Jesus accepted you. And many of us spend a lot of time trying to flatter ourselves and saying, well, what was it about me that... Jesus loved me and wanted to save me so much for. What, what is it about me? Is it my, is it my striking smile? 
you know? Um, is, is it the yellow of my teeth? Is it, is it the graying of my hair? Is it my wisdom? Is it the fact that I can tap dance? I mean, what is it that he looked at me and said, I got to have that? And the Bible goes at great length to convince us there's nothing there. <laughs> There's nothing about, and that's probably the biggest crisis we go through because we're desperately trying to find that thing that commends us to other people. But the truth of the matter is when it comes to saying, what is it that would make God give up his son? Why would Jesus die on the cross for me? There is no assignable cause in terms outside the fact that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And Paul says, you know, that's where it begins. That's how you create this sense of community that I, I accept you. I accept you. And the secondary part of this is the degree of acceptance is illustrated by what he says in verse 16 of our reading when he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So what I want you to do is stand up right now. No. No. <laughs> Now, just a few clarifying points about holy kisses, okay? <laughs> First of all, we're talking about a cultural dynamic that in much of the Mediterranean world and Asian world today, they, they still greet with kisses. I remember the first time I went to Egypt and went to these churches and spoke, and, and uh, I had these large hairy men who had three days stubble on their face, all big and sweaty, come up and grab me and kissing me on the cheek, and I suddenly understood my wife's complaint about razor burn. And it's like, and I mean, I'm standing there like a, like a petrified board, you know, like this big man is kissing me on the cheek. What the heck's going on? And, and I, came, I became accustomed to the fact that this is just what they do. And that's the idea that it's, it's not, it, it's just a natural, a cultural greeting. Paul, Paul is not creating a behavior that we in the church are called to imitate, but he's talking about a kind of warm and embracing relationship, a way of attracting people. So that in one culture, it may be the, the embrace, maybe the shake of the hand, maybe the kissing of the hand. It can be all sorts. In India, they always do. I mean, it's all these kind of gestures which communicates to the person that I am valuing you. But what I find particularly interesting about the idea of the kiss and keep in mind, the kisses were always man-to-man -man or woman-to-woman. -woman. They were never man-to-woman. That didn't happen. And if, if you, know, you want to practice this particular holy kiss in this church, I invite you to do that as much and as often as you want someplace else. But the point is, because it doesn't fit in with our culture, but the idea is that when you have to kiss somebody, even if it's a kiss on the cheek, you invade their personal space to the max. You invade their personal space. I remember when we first started going to Russia, you know, the Americans have this 24-inch personal space, and uh, Russians had a 12-inch personal space. And we had a problem. We had a lot of, you know, middle-aged and even older single men who would go on the mission trips, and they'd be out sharing with uh, people on the streets. And these very attractive young women would come up and would be very politely listening and they would get very close within 12 inches and they'd be staring the man right in the eyes and he'd be sharing and they'd be listening very carefully. And I had these guys coming to me and saying, you know, I, I don't know what to do. I, I think she likes me. 
And, you know, we would have to have these come-to-Jesus conversations, you know. Uh, I have to sit and think, let's, let's clarify a few things here. Number one, you're old. <laughs> you're really old. Uh, have you looked in a mirror lately? You're old. Uh, number two, she views you like her grandfather. So act like one. But thirdly, it's a sign of respect, not a sign of sensuality. But we mistake that. We misread that in our culture because it's different for our culture. Well, the point is that when we talk about kissing someone, it, uh, it, re, it re communicates a level of intimacy that says, I accept you. Because here's what Gottman's group found also about kissing that's fascinating. That couples who begin to lose connection stop kissing. In fact, Gottman said it's so mechanical in a sense that he recommends the six-second kiss every morning that a husband and a wife should kiss for six seconds before they part each day. And believe me, it's so mechanical and it's so effective, you could probably hold up your watch and count as you're doing it. <laughs> but what we find is it changes people because at some point we get comfortable with the intimacy. And if we don't, it means that there's stuff between you that you need to address so the intimacy can be restored. Now, I didn't mean to go into marital counseling. <laughs> I just hope my wife heard it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can get a peck. I can't get six seconds, but <laughs> I'll take a peck for now. But anyway, the whole point is that what Paul is really speaking about here is the idea that there's a trusting, vulnerable relationship despite the fact of familiarity. Despite the fact of familiarity. It was Aesop in his fables who said, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. But what does love do? Love pushes contempt aside and loves the other person. What is really stellar to me in this whole little chapter which I described earlier as kind of flyover zone for most Bible readers. We just kind of fly over it and get on to the next one where they start talking about something matters. But I believe with all of my heart there's nothing in the Word of God that doesn't matter that we need to really focus on. And as I found myself reading this and rereading it, and that's my, my pattern, I read the passage, I read it in every translation I can, and then I go to commentaries, and I go to the word studies, I tear the thing apart and go through it. And after I've done all this brainiac stuff, I sit down and just spend days reflecting on that passage over and over again. And this pat statement of a holy kiss just hit me right between the eyes. Because you see, you don't have true fellowship unless you have a kissing level fellowship. Not that I literally mean you need to kiss. But there's something about that idea that I accept you. Now the scripture says we're accepted by God into the beloved. Do we accept people? Because I think that what hinders the effectiveness of the church everywhere, but even within our culture is that we don't want to allow God to lead us into contacts with people that aren't already pre-approved. We know the kind of people we want to 
be in contact with. We know the age, we know the socioeconomic, the academic. We, know, we have all these things. We pre-qualified all sorts of people and now we go through life looking for people who will rise to our pre-qualifications. Aren't you thankful Jesus never did that to you? Aren't you thankful He didn't hold your past against you? He doesn't even hold your future against you. He knows the bad that you haven't even had a chance to do yet, but it's coming. And He still loves you today, knowing both the past and the future. I know we assume that our future is always going to be glorious and we're always going to do the right thing. My past is too long for me to believe that anymore. I know, <laughs> I know, that I, I, just, I know there's some real bonehead things in my future. I just guarantee you that. Yeah, well, you know that already. I don't need to tell you. But the whole point is, aren't you glad? But he says, you know, you need to interact. If you really want to see God use your life in a meaningful way, it means that you stop pre-qualifying people and you just leave yourself open to where God might lead you because they were followers of Jesus. They didn't lead him. They followed him. And that's the wonderful mystery of the whole Christian life. Where is God going to take you in your life? You and I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. But if I let Jesus lead me, I will always end up exactly where I'm supposed to be, even if it's someplace that I don't want to be at that moment. And I'll be honest, over the years, he's led me to places where I really didn't want to believe that he had led me. But God was there. I'll never forget being asked to do a funeral. A woman came to me and said, well, could you do my brother's funeral? And I said, sure, that's no problem. She said, uh, well, I asked you because you have a beard. At the time, I had a, a beard, full beard. Man, it was handsome on me, yeah. <laughs> Just like gluing Brillo pads to your face. But anyway, I had this full beard, and so she said, that's why I want you to do it. I thought, well, that's a peculiar. I guess that's the best I got going for me. And I show up and her brother was a hell's angel. And the place was filled with hell's angels. And in fact, I was the only non-hell's angel in the room. And I thought, oh Jesus, <laughs> guide my words, Lord. <laughs> As this girlfriend sat there in all black leather with a red rose in her hair. And I got up there and I just started sharing and I could see as I talked about heaven and hell and the judgment of God and the accountability and coming in the presence for God and are you ready to meet Jesus? That you know, <laughs> If looks could kill, I was just thankful that chapel had a back door. <laughs> it, was like, it was like scary. I knew I was going to walk out the door and knock over one of their bikes. It was going to be a moment from Pee Wee Herman, right? This is where I died. I didn't want to be there, but I was there. And it was amazing how God moves when we let him take us into those places. Because some of those guys wanted to know Jesus. It was their moment. And I'm just telling you, it may not be so dramatic and won't make such a great story that you can exaggerate like I just did, but you know, it, nonetheless, it becomes the reality of your experience where God has taken you and has used you in ways that you never thought he would simply because it wasn't so much even saying yes to what God wants. It's just following him where he's going and accepting those who God brings into your life, befriending those who God brings into your life, allowing them into your heart and really letting them come into kissing distance 
if you know what I mean. Because now I'm getting confused, so let's quit. <laughs> Lord Jesus, I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak into our lives on a level that um, is beyond the ordinary. I know that when we come to church, Lord, we all desire the comfort of your truth and of your love and of your words. We want to know that we're accepted into the beloved. We want to know that we're valued. We want to know, God, oh, how desperately we want to know that we're forgiven, that we truly are forgiven, that we can release all the shame and the guilt that haunts the dark moments of our life. But also, Lord, we know that we need to be challenged. We invite you, Lord, to, to challenge us. I pray in the time that we have left that your Holy Spirit could speak to us in a gracious but challenging way, Lord, that we could respond. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you know that we continue on a little time of worship as Brian leads us in song, that we really encourage you to allow God to lead your heart into worship of Him. Because worship isn't about singing. We often think about that. We call it the worship service. But worship is an attitude of heart and life. We worship God. We worship with everything that we do, with our time, our money, our energy. We, we worship God constantly, or at least we have the opportunity to do so. And what I want to ask you in this little time that we have left is just this time of repose and reflection to sit back and just ask God, speak unto me, deliver what challenges I need in my heart. Help me to remove from my life the things that have kept me from being able to follow you. Artificial barriers that I have erected, places I'll say, I'll never go beyond this point. Help me to remove those things and say, Lord, whatever you want, I'll do. I'll follow you where you lead. Because that's when you begin to experience that dynamic of life that was evident in Paul and in these 26 other people he references. I encourage you to do so.